0: Welcome to another episode of Tax Break. I'm Steve Dixon, a tax litigator at Miller & Chevalier, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague Lauren Ponce, who works in international tax and tax policy at Miller & Chevalier. Uh, As we've said before, Tax Break is a podcast that's meant to bring you topics that, some insight into topics that we think are interesting in the tax field. Uh, We're going to talk about a topic today that I find particularly interesting, and I've spent probably too much time on, given the outcome of the case. Uh, As always, a disclaimer, tax break is not meant to be legal advice, and you cannot rely on it as legal advice. It reflects only the opinions and insights of its hosts and or guests. In this case, it'll just be the two of us hosts. So what we're going to discuss today is uh, the the Altera case. And uh, this is a little bit after the fact, because as many of you probably know, uh, the Supreme Court denied Altera's petition for certiorari last week. Uh, So this brings uh, an end to a very long uh, saga for these cost-sharing regulations. And we wanted to talk about a a couple of things today. Uh, One is uh, the Administrative Procedures Act, or the APA, as it's known. That's something that uh, tax lawyers now need to actually become uh, fluent in. Uh, that wasn't always the case. So we're going to talk a little bit about the mechanics of the APA. We're going to talk about the issues that were framed in the Altera case, uh, not with probably the depth they deserve, but enough to give you a, a, a sense of what was going on in that case. And uh, I want to sort of close out by talking about the the denial of petition for cert because the, um, We're going to talk a little bit about DACA today and and DREAMers. Uh, The Supreme Court, just before it denied Altera cert, actually decided a case on DACA. As you probably all know, it's a landmark decision um, that relied on some APA principles. And those APA principles uh, ought to have been relevant to to what happened in Altera, although ultimately now we're not going to find out how those principles would apply.
1: We'll never find out. But they, but they have relevance for the future, right? We have we have more new tax regulations that have been uh, promulgated since the 2003 cost-sharing regulations. Thank goodness, so this is still relevant, you know. And
0: yeah, that's right, highly relevant, and and especially in the wake of all of the regulations that Treasury's had to enact in order to interpret the TCJA, which is right. a, a sort of seismic shift in the law, um, and heavily, I think, heavily reliant on Treasury interpreting the statute through regulations.
1: Absolutely. There are many, many, many uh, grants of regulatory authority sprinkled throughout TCJA, so we have plenty of opportunity. I thought you were going to start with our hook, which is, you know, what does immigration have to do with tax?
0: No, we You can no. you can spin that. No, it's
1: too late. I mean, we're, we already have our reader. We didn't have to do the bait and switch.
0: Or <laughs> well, we will talk a little bit about what immigration has to do with tax. In a we very, will. In a very narrow context.
1: In a very esoteric way as we are known to do.
0: That's right. That's right. Um, so... To kick it off, I I think it'd be helpful to give our listeners just a, a little thumbnail sketch of, w- of what the APA is about, because usually we start out and we're talking about something in uh, Title 26 of the United <laughs> States Code, and we're not in the code with the APA. We're in a different area of the law. Um, and so just a sort of quick sketch of what the APA is and what it's meant to do. So uh, going way back to early 20th century history, uh, obviously in the wake of FDR's New Deal, uh, there was a, a glut, if you will, of administrative agencies that cropped up in the executive branch of government. Many, many of these agencies were given, as they should have been in order to function, rulemaking power. Um, Uh, you know, part of this is just sort of the advancement of the technocratic state, right? We need the the economy and businesses are, are complex and need lots of regulation. And in order to administer and create those regulations, we have to have executive agencies doing it. There was a concern, rightly so, that administrative agency rulemaking could become too powerful. And the APA is meant to essentially put that into check. So it was enacted in 1946. And the idea is that uh, we can rein in the rulemaking power of administrative agencies by forcing them to follow particular procedures, administrative procedures, if you will, uh, that uh, ensure that the uh, agency rulemaking process is more like uh, legislation. Now, it obviously isn't not going to be legislation. It can't be. That's impractical. Um, But there are several elements of the APA that are are meant to address this, and I want to just talk about a couple in particular. Uh, The first is notice and comment. So if your agency is going to enact regulations that will have the the force of law, which regulations do, um, then it has to provide notice, public notice of the rules and and accept comments. Now Lauren, this is a process that obviously I think you're you're very familiar with in terms of <laughs> making comments on on regulations. I know that's something that uh, that I do. That you do. <laughs> that we yes. do. It factors, we do. Fact, yes, it factors into your practice. So certainly more than uh, the practice of someone like me who does does litigation. Um, and that's that's sort of part of the services that 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 lawyers can provide, right, is to sort of help you navigate this process of, of making comments. But the idea is a simple one, right? We are not, these agencies are not going behind closed doors and making rules. Right. So they want it
1: to be a more deliberative process akin to uh, legislating, right? So you have some time. You have time to review. In the legislative context, this would be what's known as, as lobbying. You know, you you have an idea about what you want the bill to look like, you spend your time talking to to legislators, and hopefully the bill, if if you are effective, um, is modified to reflect your concerns. And so the comment period is kind of a similar process whereby concerned, um, in our case, taxpayers or any other affected individual or group of individuals by the proposed regulation would take the time to review the proposed language and write in in a comment letter about why they think a certain provision doesn't work appropriately, ideas for making it better, um, more tailored to the intent of the statute, uh, which the regulation seeks to amplify. So that's the and, purpose.
0: Yeah, and and it it serves as we'll see in discussing uh, the Altera case. It also serves another purpose, which is to. S- to record effectively, to create a record of concerns that folks have raised about the rulemaking uh, um, and what what the effect of the rules. Because it's not if, if the agency decides to um, not act on comments or ignore comments, that's something that becomes reviewable by a court. And that's the second aspect of the the APA that I wanted to mention is that essentially it provides for judicial review of agency rulemaking, so that uh, the the judicial branch acts as a check on the power uh, of the executive, just as it acts as a check on the power of the legislative branch uh, vis-a-vis the constitution and other (laughs) elements of the law. Um, So... uh, I want to sort of talk for a second and I, I don't want to be too critical because I worry that sometimes on these, I get a little critical, but there is, yeah, what? there, there is a history of, a, a sort of, a, there's a sorted history between the treasury department and in this case, the, the executive agency that makes regulations for, uh, in, in tax and the APA and, um, For many years, uh, Treasury acted as if many elements of the APA did not apply. To, to tax regulations. It
1: was and, an example of what we call
0: tax exceptionalism. Tax exceptionalism. That's right. And, and that's, that's what it sort of became known as. Although I, I wonder whether the, the tax exceptionalism term is something that is more has, has entered the parlance more now that it is dead than it exactly. did. Before
1: it, Before it was never spoken of. It was just understood. Right. And now that it's gone, everybody's talking about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it, right. I mean, there really was an element, at least for those of us who uh, practiced before Mayo and the end of tax exceptionalism, there was an element of a kind of agreed uh, uh, truce between uh, taxpayers and Treasury that the APA was not necessarily beside the point, but not mm-hmm. at the front and center of, of the, the tax rulemaking process. Mm-hmm. And this in part had to do with, uh, so I think probably folks have heard of Chevron and Chevron deference. Um, That case for many years was, I I think, largely ignored in the tax bar and in favor of another case that addressed a similar set of issues about agency rulemaking um, in the tax context specifically, which was national muffler. And, And I think folks thought that thought of it as, a, as sort of an alternative uh, or parallel universe of Administrative <laughs> Procedures Act and and, and, and deference issues. Um, but of course, this all ended when the Supreme Court decided the Mayo case and effectively said that Treasury regulations are just like any other regulations and they are subject to the same kinds of judicial review uh, that any other agency rulemaking is. Wow. So um so so treasury i mean in saying that treasury's compliance with the apa has been spotty over the years uh is in part due to this effectively a sort of agreed truce uh, about tax exceptionalism Uh, but treasury also had a, a, a spotty history when it came to Uh, complying with the notice and comment procedures under the APA. So in order to make the rulemaking transparent, notice and comment has to be uh, sort of a a public process that gives the public a a chance to comment on the regulations. And Treasury has, uh, so um, Professor Kristen Hickman at the University of Minnesota Law School uh, has published a lot on this. There's some really good pieces. There are actually... Pretty readable, so I'd recommend them. But she did a study on how often Treasury actually uh, went through notice and comment with its regulations. And over a a very small period, found that Treasury almost never offered uh, its regulations up for notice and comment. It often claimed an exemption from notice and comment um, with little more than a perfunctory explanation as to why it was exempt from notice and comment. Um, again, it's re- it had reasons. I mean, they, these were rooted in in some of the standards and the the old distinction between uh, legislative and interpretive regulations. Uh, there are reasons why Treasury did that, but in any event, um, we are entering a new phase for for tax rules. Right. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, and, and in terms of judicial review, I mean, there are a couple of standards that are out there. We talk, I mentioned Chevron, which is the famous two-part test that essentially asks, uh, the, the Chevron two-step, as it's widely known, uh, that essentially asks whether or not the statute is uh, ambiguous. Um, and if it is ambiguous and, and and the regulation does not agree with the statute, it can be stricken um, if the regulation is ambiguous, then Chevron asks to asks the court to look at whether the agency has reasonably interpreted the statute. Then the other standard is under this uh, a famous case, State Farm, which essentially requires agencies to go through what's known as a reasonable decision-making process. So the, essentially, this is a way of looking at how did the agency come about just dis- choosing its rules, and, and look, you can imagine all kinds of examples as to why we should have a principle like that. If you were to have an agency that has a a, a, a a lobbyist appointed by an administration whose goal is to essentially tear down the functioning of that agency, then courts ought to be able to look carefully at whether that agency's rulemaking process follows some basic principles of, of of reason and considers the evidence before it.
1: Right. So despite the APA, its stated purpose of acting as a check against uh, unfettered regulatory action, it obviously has some shortfalls if the courts have to step in and interpret compliance with the APA to begin with, right? So we have a line of cases, um, as you mentioned, National Muffler used to be the standard for tax cases with regard to APA compliance, no longer. And so now we have the Chevron Chevron uh, State Farm uh, set of cases, which kind of govern, and we'll see, we'll get into Altera a little bit later, but that case uh, calls State Farm into review.
0: Right, right, and, and brings it to bear in a way that is... Not novel, but but important in in, in this context. Yeah, that's yes. right. So um, so let's turn and talk about the uh, the regulation that's at issue in in Altera. So it's it's a it's a regulation under Section four eighty two, which is yes. your bailiwick, <laughs> is. One of your one of your many uh, <laughs> <It's rough laughs> areas of home. specialty. Yes. Yeah. So. Tell us about the, the how this regulation emerged and a little bit of the history of, of the cost-sharing regulation that was in dispute in Altera.
1: I will. Um, and to do that, I have to go back a little bit further to a case called Xilinx. Um, but first, 482 is implicated. The regulation is 1.482-7, so the cost-sharing regulations. And really, cost-sharing is just a way for related parties to develop Intangible property, share the cost, and then split the anticipated uh, benefits of exploiting that IP in proportion to the um, amount of cost that each party has contributed. So that is cost sharing in a nutshell. And there are uh, several sets of, or two sets of regs that are relevant for this discussion. The first governs qualified cost sharing arrangements, which is uh, a set of regulations promulgated in 1995. Um, And that's where Xilinx comes in. So in that case, it's the same question essentially as what's presented in Altera, which is whether stock-based compensation costs, the costs associated with giving employees stock-based compensation, are costs that should be included in the pool of costs to be shared in a cost-sharing arrangement. Now in Xilinx, those regulations were, were the old set. So you had a qualified cost-sharing arrangement, which is not what you would have today under the current regs. Uh, but largely for our purposes here in the stock-based compensation discussion, the same. And in Xilinx, uh, the regulations at issue had a phrase, this all costs language. And the issue turned on whether or not stock-based compensation costs were includable in that all costs definition. Um, And so the tax court said, no, absolutely not. Um, You know, we're going to look at this through the lens of the arm's length standard. In this case, if you're going to comply with the arm's length standard, you have to look to what unrelated parties would do. And, you know, the court said, no, we don't. Third parties would not share these costs because they just, that's, we haven't seen any evidence that they do. So this all-cost language cannot be um, encompassing stock-based compensation.
0: You which, have the, which has the effect, then, of if, you're a, if you're a large domestic technology company that wants to develop some technology with its foreign subsidiaries, and you had to share the costs of your highly paid tech, technical employees here in the U.S. in the pool of cost sharing, it would essentially drive, drive your tax up. Right, right. <laughs> Effectively.
1: Effectively, um, so there there are many companies that have a vested interest in not including these costs in the in the cost pool for that very reason. So um, they appealed also to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit first reversed the Tax Court and said, actually, you do have to include these costs um, in the pool. And then the Ninth Circuit reversed itself and came back and said, actually, no, you don't. You don't have to include these costs. This is not consistent with the arms length standard. Uh, So don't worry about it. Xilinx, you're good to go. Um, You can exclude the stock-based compensation costs. In response to that, the service promulgated proposed regs in 2002. And these regulations um, were, directly addressing the stock-based compensation issue. And so the regs explicitly said, you have to include, there's a parenthetical, including stock-based compensation after this mention of all costs. And then there's a further uh, provision in the regs that goes into what exactly stock-based compensation costs might be. So that was in the proposed regs. 2002, there were a, there was a bevy of comments from from taxpayers saying, "Wait a minute! Um, this is not what unrelated parties do." We they proffered evidence. Um, everyone was 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 very clear that this was not something that was consistent with arms length because unrelated parties don't share these costs.
0: Well, and I have, I mean they're they're proffering the evidence that Xilinx used to win in the first instance. <laughs> right.
1: Right. So. One would think that Treasury would either uh, find some evidence to the contrary, i.e., that parties do share these costs, or give some reasons why the proffered evidence was not credible. So, why the evidence that taxpayers submitted in their comments uh, just was was able to be rejected for valid reasons, namely that it wasn't it was incredible. So, Treasury. When you
0: did, can, yeah, and you can see here. If I, I just want to interject, you can see that that we're on the path to an (laughs) APA fight because we have an instance where the, the, you know, treasury interpreted it's uh, the statute and its own regulation in a particular way lost in Xilinx and then tried to fix it by fiat, right. By, uh, by agency rulemaking, which is within their, their power, but the conditions are ripe for, uh, because we have, here we have the agency enacting a rule and a rule that is, Sort of now contrary to a decision that's on the books in the Ninth Circuit,
1: right? A decision that's contrary to the books, and it's also a decision um, that is they put forth, and no other circumstances have changed, other than they got a they, they got an unfavorable ruling from the Ninth Circuit, right? So. Okay. Other than the L, yeah, right. Other than the L, nothing has changed. But here we go. We're going to do a complete and total uh, flip flop from uh, what the regs said. We're going to clarify with the regs. Clarify. That's right. <laughs> uh, in contravention of a Ninth Circuit case on the same issue. So fine. They, the Treasury comes along and, and issues the final regs in two thousand three, and said, and really doesn't. It just says, no, we're not going to accept what what taxpayers have included in their comments we're moving forward no change to the stock based compensation reference um, in the all costs of paragraph and no change to the stock based compensation definition so we are now in reg territory
0: right and and i mean what's really important right especially for for the sake of alteras case is what did treasury say when it said the when it finally decided that we're going to enact these, these are the final rules, and we're rejecting right. this evidence of taxpayer behavior in the arm's length context. And, and what it said was quite quite little, actually. It didn't provide much in the way of, of why it is that, these, that this arm's length evidence is not relevant. Right. And moreover, Treasury claimed that, in fact, its regulation is consistent with the arms length standard.
1: It did, but without, as I mentioned, either refuting the credibility of the evidence to the contrary or offering some new evidence. Right. So so that's where we ended up uh, with the 2003 regs. We have a new rule, not much in the way of support for the new rule, and we're going forward. So this brings in Altera. Which um, was in a cost sharing—it uh, was in a cost sharing arrangement from 1997 to 2007, but 2004 to seven were under audit, and they did not share costs consistent with Xilinx, inconsistent with the 2003 final ranks, and thus gave birth to the dispute.
0: <laughs> right, right, and so the so just to pick up the story there, uh, <laughs> they they. Uh, this the case went to tax court, um, and they were challenging. If effectively, what was at stake was a challenge to the regulations, um, the, to the 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 right the now final regulations um, that required them to include uh, employee stock option costs in in their cost sharing pool, uh, and they they lost uh, or they won. The treasury lost at the tax court um, in in a kind of. Uh, a, 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 a not entirely rare but a, a fairly substantial loss they it was a it was reviewed the decision was reviewed by the entire tax court and and was it was a 14-0 decision there were some judges that recused themselves but yeah they they lost badly um, Someone the call tax court,
1: landslide. A landslide. yeah
0: yeah that's <laughs> one way. that's one way to think of it um, And so we have a 14-0 decision by the tax court saying these regulations are not valid. And the rationale was of a piece with the same reason that xilinx was decided the way it was however many years before which was that there is arm's length of ev- it there's evidence of arm's length behavior that parties do not share these costs at arm's length and the arm's length standard is the is the pillar is the <laughs> is the is you know the 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 big note of <laughs> 482 and if you don't comply with the arm's length standard you you lose and and that's so the tax court. Held for the taxpayer. Um, the, this is,
1: but I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, but what what's interesting and the, the 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 important thing is that what the IRS argued in front of the tax court was that this this regulation was consistent with the arms length standard. They stuck to their guns um, and stuck to what Treasury said in its explanation. Um, in its preamble for the final regulations, that this is this is the arm. This is what the arms length standard means.
1: So, were they stuck uh, with that? I have two two observations. Well, the first is a question. The second is an observation. So, were were they stuck with the arms length argument because they were in um, the position of defending the regulation under State Farm, which calls into question empirical evidence, which calls into question what do unrelated parties do, which. Impl- implies that arm's length is is the controlling standard because you have to look at what un- unrelated parties do to be to determine whether or not you're compliant with arm's length.
0: So, so I want to break your one question into two questions. <laughs> and so I still have my observation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, so the the question, right, is w- were they stuck? Well, the answer is, does the law provide that they were stuck? I think there's a pretty good argument that it does, mm-hmm. and that's what we'll talk about when we talk about immigration right. <laughs> in a, in, a, right. in a few <laughs> minutes. Um, but, but. So they should have been stuck, but but were were they practically as a practical matter stuck? No, because the Ninth Circuit bails them out and lets them provide an entirely different rationale in litigation, and in fact, not even in litigation in on appeal
1: yeah. before
0: the Ninth Circuit. So um, before we get into yeah, that,
1: yeah. my other obs- well, this, this might turn into a question given given your observation. So we. We know that in the tax court, they said, "All right, you're losing on State Farm grounds, but by the way, if we were in a Chevron type of analysis, you would have lost under step two anyway. This would not have been a permissible regulation." So, is that the hook that they needed to argue the C W I angle on appeal?
0: You mean, did the did the did the alternative decision for Chevron give them the room they needed to argue? I mean, maybe, Um, but, you know, the the tax court, I mean, there is, so one of the disputed elements both in the tax court and I think in APA writ large is the extent to which there is a distinction between Chevron Step 2, which Mm -hmm. looks at the reasonableness of the agency's interpretation of the statute, and and State Farm, which looks at the reasonableness of the agency's decision-making process. Mm -hmm. And so they're close in in form.
1: You you can't have an unreasonable decision-making process and end up with a reasonable interpretation of the statute, or can you?
0: Well, yeah, maybe you can. I mean, that's the you know, the, I think there's a lot of different modes of thought on <laughs> this, and it probably deserves its entire uh, its, its its own podcast. I think there's people that next will, time, next time. Yes, that's right. We'll talk about State Farm versus Chevron step two. Oh.
1: Um,
0: yeah, no, it's a great question, and and I think a really hard one, and one that um, I hope that tax lawyers will. Get a chance to invest more energy in as we, as we become uh, as we become part of the the, the larger picture of administrative.
1: Law. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, I'm looking forward. I think there are some some good
0: good fights coming with uh, absolutely some of the absolutely. regulations
1: that have been promulgated recently. So we have a lot to look forward to.
0: That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so so what happened at the Ninth Circuit, right? Is the the government essentially changed its changed its argumentative uh, angle here. Its its argument was, uh, it it walked away from what's in the preamble, and it walked away from, largely, walked away from uh, what it argued in the tax court, and said, we don't, it doesn't matter whether or not this regulation complies with the arm's length standard. In fact, there is language in Section 482 that was added back in 1986, the commensurate with income language, or CWI, I think is the transfer pricing uh,
1: what kids window. call it. Yeah. <laughs> CWI
0: said, well, no, that allows us to allocate income in a way that is commensurate with the income of whatever the intangible is. In this instance, um, in order to, Allocate income uh, <laughs> according to you know commensurate with the income that it generates in the future. You sh- you need to consider stock stock option costs. Those are a genuine economic cost, and but and the treasury takes it as I think they had to. They and the government had to take it a little further in their argument and they essentially said we don't we don't care what the arms length standard says we're empowered to go the, the commensurate with income addition to the statute which treasury mentioned offhandedly in its and its preamble uh, essentially stands for the proposition that, no, we don't need to look at the arm's length standard. We can justify this regulation based on the power that was vested in us by operation of Congress and the commensurate with income language. So pi- uh, it, it's a pivot. It,
1: it is a pivot. And it kind of ignores, um, or to, to to give credence to that argument, ignores the tax court's articulation, because they did talk about commensurate with income, and they said, look, arm's length standard and commensurate with income are both in the statute. So, you know, I would imagine that one should not take primacy over the other in terms of, of conceptual relevance. And in fact, the tax court said CWI is meant to supplement arm's length, not supplant it. And so when Treasury says, you know, we don't have to worry about arm's length because CWI says that you have to recognize benefits of the cost-sharing um, arrangement in a in a manner that um, gives you a benefit that is proportionate to the cost. That's what cost-sharing says. CWI is just another articulation of that. And if you're not splitting costs in a manner in which unrelated parties would do so, I don't see how you could ever get a result that is commensurate with the income that the intangible generates right right right, um, right. and so you have to read those together for it for treasury to be able to abandon its arm's length position altogether and switch entirely to whether or not these regulations are a way of effectuating a result that's commensurate with the income uh, com- uh, effectuating a, a cost sharing that that results in income that's recognized in proportion to those costs you split it's it just this transfer pricing practitioner cognitive dissonance
0: <laughs> yeah right i mean and the, 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 this is a problem at the core of section 482 in a sense right i mean the, there is this element of there is a subjectivity objectivity issue um mm-hmm. because you're sort of the the principle the objective principle is look to what others do which is in a sense a subjective principle (laughs) so that's another treatise that we'll we'll write in another uh, another podcast but um i i think that's i i think that you're you're right i think there was a bit of a this case at least in the in the press and in 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 the sort of the broader dialogue did did take on a kind of uh it, it it went down a tan it went off on a tangent to a certain extent, which was this tangent of, well, uh does the arm's length standard always require you to look at real transactional evidence, or can you disregard that evidence? And that seems to me like a, a, it's, it's, a, it's close to the right question, but it's not exactly the right question, because the right question here is, even if you think that Section 482 always requires you to look at transactional evidence, and it might, um, I mean, I think you know, one, of the, one of the arguments that sort of cropped up over the years on this Anna and in Xilinx is, well, look, the, yes, we you taxpayer, are substituting uh the arms you're for for the arms length standard you are substituting one of several specified methods you're saying you just have to use the cut or cop method right you just have to look at comparable transactions mm-hmm. and that was a that was a it was a smart argumentative move on the government's part to sort of reduce the taxpayer's argument to this oh you're saying only one method is acceptable i don't think that's quite what taxpayers meant um but the real question is if there is transactional evidence as between um parties at arm's length third parties uh, which there was in this instance does the agency have to consider it and they i i can't get to anything other than yes <laughs> as an answer for that. Now the Ninth Circuit didn't. Right, I think they
1: have to consider it, but they may, at the end of the day, decide that that, that goes to method. You know, it may not be the best method to look at. Uh, that's right. You know, that's right. A, or a cut, and that's fine. But to your point, it has to be weighed.
0: <laughs> the the agency in its rulemaking process mm-hmm. needs to explain why it is that this evidence of what parties would do at arm's length does not determine the outcome in these in these instances'm right. and, and and you, I think that if you if you were to say the arms length standard is necessarily requires you to use a transactional method then you would come out with the answer that yes, Treasury could not have enacted this regulation in the first instance. But at any event, it at least, Treasury at least had to make, it had to make an effort to deal with this evidence. And it, right. it didn't.
1: Right, it was a smart argument, but it was kind of a, a red herring because we're not asking tre- uh, Treasury to apply any of these methods to come to a result. Exactly. Right? And exactly. so it's it's, You know, it's it is a best best method kind of argument, but we're not into methods at this point. We're just into determining Rulemaking. Yes, we're determining whether or not Treasury weighed the evidence and properly rejected it, but you gotta weigh it.
0: Right. So what happens, so real quick, what happens at the Ninth Circuit is that the, the um, <laughs> Treasury, Treasury wins on these arguments. Um, and there are, it was a, a, a little bit of a free for all. In the first instance, one of the, the, uh, one of the judges who, in, who initially voted for Xilinx or against Xilinx in the, the Ninth Circuit decision, Judge Thomas, who's now the chief judge, um, was one of the judges on the panel for Altera. Um, uh, the the government won in a two one decision. Uh, one of the judges who sat on that panel passed away before the decision came out. Uh, the Ninth Circuit went to the extraordinary step of actually withdrawing that decision, adding someone else to the panel, and reissuing another decision uh, w- in which Treasury again won in a two one decision. Mm-hmm. So here we have a, a you know a two one panel decision overruling a 14-0 tax court decision and tax the taxpayer you know moved for a a hearing on bunk lost but had a lot of dissenters and it's i think four dissenters in its in its court Um, and and you know when they and and even in the the panel decision the 2-1 decision uh, uh there's a there's a dissent there as well which is powerful and, and fairly well articulated. Um, one of the issues that sort of factored um, had had a lot to do uh, with the Ninth Circuit's decision was was this or at least the Ninth Circuit dissent was the notion that this commensurate with income language is irrelevant here because we don't have a transfer of intangibles and that's what that's what implicates the commensurate with in, income language. Um, but that's beside the point. So uh, So So the taxpayer lost, Treasury won, the regulation stands, uh, taxpayer petitions for cert, cert gets denied. And not a shock, right, that cert gets denied. It's not like there's another circuit court out there that has one of these cases. And in fact, it's, uh, it's unfortunate because I think the taxpayers for whom this is the biggest dollar issue are... For the most part, 9th oh, circuit
1: the night circuit. so there will <laughs> never be a <any> surface
0: split. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one can hope.
1: One can hope, but it's highly unlikely. That
0: yeah. So, um, so where so, are we now? Yeah. So let's talk about immigration for a minute, mm-hmm. <laughs> because
1: Here we are. here's our hook. <laughs> yeah.
0: So yeah. So 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 yes, Altera loses, and Cert isn't isn't granted. But uh, the week before. The Supreme Court denies cert. In this case, they actually decide uh, to strike down uh, the Department of Homeland Security's rescission of the of DACA of the, mm-hmm. the, the uh, deferred. Uh, I, I'm going to forget all of the, the deferred
1: acronym. action for childhood arrivals.
0: Arrivals, right? Yeah. So, um, and in doing so, so this was a obviously a priority for this administration to. To uh, gut DACA was a DACA was in the first instance a, an administrative. It was an agency mm-hmm. action by the Department of Homeland Security. It was not legislation. Uh, I think everybody knows the basics of what what DACA does. Allows folks who arrived here at, with their parents to remain here. Um, they
1: arrived here without uh, legal immigration status.
0: Without as legal children immigration status,
1: under as children. eighteen, mm-hmm. um, and further, if you were in university so studying, you could stay till or whatever, How right.
0: old you you so, so DHS decides this, to strike this down. Now, it, it, this comes out of a series of decisions that culminated in a Fifth Circuit decision that actually held certain elements of DACA to be impermissible. Um, th- those elements had to do with providing benefits to folks who were here uh, on this status. Um, and the then Attorney General Jeff Sessions said we should strike this down and wrote a memo to the Department of Homeland Security. And Department of Homeland Security essentially said, we are, because of this Fifth Circuit decision and because the law is what it is, we are rescinding DACA. Uh, And obviously a flurry of lawsuits rightly followed, um, including a challenge from the NAACP that said uh, that this is actually not Uh, A valid action under the APA you have not provided us with a rationale for this agency action Um, this is too thin and you didn't explain it very well in in a nutshell Mm -hmm. I don't want to go in too much into the immigration law here but uh, uh, (laughs) right so so the so they actually so the NDAAC. CP prevailed on this APA claim in the DC Circuit, and so the Department of Homeland Security went back and said, "Okay, well, we're going to actually provide you." It was a, a sort of a reversed and remanded, but you go ahead, agency, and fix it and provide us with a with a cogent rationale for rescinding it. Um, and emphasis the, on cogent. Cogent, yes. <laughs> um, and uh, Department of Homeland Security tried uh, and offered some other uh, alternative explanations. And uh, so that case ends up in, so there, the, obviously that gets challenged, that agency action, action gets challenged and ends up before uh, the Supreme Court in the case that, that was just decided the University of California Board of Regents uh, brought. So that case ends up before the Supreme Court. The case is about, whether Department of Home, among other things, whether the Department of Homeland Security complied with the Administrative Procedures Act in rescinding DACA. And uh, it looked at factors that were actually highly germane to the dispute in Altera. One of which was, what do we look at when we decide whether or not the agency complied with the APA? Do we look at the first sort of threadbare justification that we got from the agency or do we let them have a second bite at the apple when they make this more uh, comprehensive if not fully explanatory attempt at justifying rescinding DACA and Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court said you're stuck with you're stuck with one not so, surprisingly,
1: right? Because that's the law. right. We really don't like two bites at the apple, generally
0: speaking. That's right. And and if you're an agency and we're governing what you're doing, you can't you can't act first and explain later. Right. <laughs> right? That that makes sense, and it's it's good policy by the Supreme Court. But um, one of the things that that it calls into question about Altera, obviously, is that. When Treasury enacted the cost-sharing reg, it came out in the first instance and said this is compliant with the arm's length standard, and mm-hmm. that's this is consistent with the arm's length standard, and only in litigation did it come back and offer this commensurate with income rationale for the right. regulation, and if you look at the Supreme Court's decision, it's not just sort of baked into the actual decision that we can only consider the, the the agency's initial action. It's also baked into uh, what Justice Kavanaugh writes, where he basically says, it's not, yes, yes, Department of Homeland Security did this after the fact, but it wasn't as if that was just a position they chose in litigation. <gasps> in our case, Altera, oh. <laughs> it was a position that that they chose in litigation, the Ninth right. Circuit will tell you that that was somehow the position implicated. that they chose in litigation was implicated by the by the uh, by the preamble in the first place. I think that deserves a much closer look.
1: Um, it may be. I mean, there are a lot of words in the preamble, but the government didn't talk about them below. That's
0: right. That's right. <laughs> right. So right. just
1: because the word appears, does not mean that the it's... Treasury argued it below.
0: It shouldn't be enough. That's right. And if we're in if we're really requiring agencies to provide a, a, a cohesive explanation for what they're doing, they ought if they actually thought that the commensurate with income was something that allowed them to, to do this, um, they should have said so.
1: Right. It only would strengthen it strengthen their claim. One would think that, I don't know, you're the litigator here, but you tell me, don't you bring all of your best arguments to bear.
0: The first <laughs> you, <time. laughs> do. you do, Although, although I will say a word in Treasury's defense. There, if you're if you're doing something that is is you know you're wor- worried about this arm's length question in Xilinx, offering an alternative explanation that is inconsistent with the arm's length standard might not be something you wanted to do. So you, you would
1: just say that you you know you argue in the alternative. It's it's consistent with arms length. Alternatively, one could look
0: at within. Arms, it works. <laughs> that works great in legal briefs. I'm not sure how well agencies can use that sort of tactic. Um, the, and the, so the and then the second element of of the DACA decision that's that's interesting and, and theoretically relevant to to the Altera case is um, one of the things that that DHS did not do in either of its explanations is provide. Any consideration to the kinds of reliance interests that are implicated by the, for, for citizens who came here involuntarily, who didn't have status, etc., um, th- th- those people have a lot at stake. They and do you, have
1: a lot at stake.
0: So, for people without legal immigration status, there's a lot at stake, and yeah. those reliance interests are enormous. And it is reasonable for the Supreme Court to say to DHS, among the considerations that you needed to address in in rescinding this act, are these reliance considerations.
1: Right, you're, They're front you're changing and center. people's lives. This is, this is a big deal, and you can't just pull the rug out from someone without without following these procedures.
0: That's right, and there is an argument uh, that, that 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 same kind of consideration should have operated in Altera. Now, obviously we're not talking about deportations here, right. but, um, but the fact remains that Treasury was squarely confronted with this evidence of arm's length behavior among other taxpayers, and it does little more than sweep that evidence under the rug in its preamble. So, so if you are in order, if if the Department of Homeland Security had to consider those reliance interests, it is not, uh, a, you know, a, a a far leap to say that Treasury should have at least said something more about the arm's length evidence that it was confronted with in an actual right. regulation.
1: Absolutely. So we've kind of come full circle here because now we can be happy that tax uh, exceptionalism doesn't really exist anymore. And so this DACA case is relevant in the tax space, right? Absolutely. Before, before it would have been like, oh, well, that has nothing to do with tax. And, and you know, okay. But now, absolutely relevant. So,
0: right. So hopefully we will uh, be dealing with a bunch of uh, Administrative Procedures Act fights in the future. <laughs> I think
1: it will be. I really do. I, I think it'll be interesting to uh, to hopefully get to participate in. So we'll
0: see. That's right. That's we'll, right. We'll see. So
1: we've kept our, our listeners longer Too than long. our usual. Usual 30 <laughs> minutes or so. But this was a good good chat. And I think it was worth the, the uh, extra time. I hope so. so. So next time, we will bring you a more concise Fightful analysis of some thorny tax issue.
0: <laughs> this it's, is probably actually, in, in my defense, this is probably one of the shorter uh, uh, song and dances that I've done on the APA, so. That's
1: probably true. And <laughs> listeners, you have been spared. I have not. I've heard the longer version. <laughs> so, we'll see. So until Our, next time, send us ideas. Send us ideas, right?
0: For, that's right. Our email is uh, podcasts at milshev.com. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Yes. Until next time. Thank you. Thanks.